This episode is brought to you by PayPal's Small Business Bootcamp Series. Part of gratitude is accepting what you've got. And another part is that concept of micro goals and being able to put markers of what you've achieved and to be thankful and to be to acknowledge, pat yourself on the back. When you look at things like traumatic experiences and stressors, it's relative to the individual. You can't compare your trauma to someone else's. It just doesn't work that way. It's what you're resilient against. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. Most of you are already aware of my fascination with the military, the origins of which I'm still not really sure about, but which I've pretty much stopped questioning now because we also all know that weird things will make you yay. So just roll with them because you're already far better off than those who haven't found their yay yet. So you won't be surprised how much I enjoyed this week's two episodes, but I promise the military connection was just a timing coincidence. If you haven't listened yet, our Yays of Our Lives guest for this week was Tom Howell, Director of of Field Operations for Disaster Relief Australia, a partner of our partner, Mitsubishi, so basically part of the neighbourhood. Tom started out as an army combat paramedic doing some fascinating work in Afghanistan, then later worked in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, learning all about jungle medicine, before becoming a full-time firefighter, which he does alongside his work with DRA. Today, we're joined by two fellow veterans and legendary brothers, Dan and Ben Pronk, who are along with their close friend, Tim Curtis, just published and already sold out, mind you, their first brilliant book, The Resilience Shield. All three were elite soldiers in the SAS, which is already impressive enough, but later went on to complete their MBAs, launching successful post-military careers, and the brothers now fondly refer to themselves as two-thirds of an author, setting today's warm, self-deprecating tone. I already gush about Resilience Shield enough in this episode. I mean, I really do. (laughs) But whether you're interested in the military or not, it is a transformative handbook for our crazy times that we find ourselves in, aiming to help us build a shield of resilience against the undeniable uncertainty and sometimes unfairness of the world. High adrenaline military anecdotes are weaved seamlessly in among dense philosophy, science and research from around the world around timely themes like fulfillment fulfillment, loss and then rebuilding of identity, trauma, modern information overload and goal setting. No size 12 font storytelling here. Resilient Shield is packed full of a methodology built over three stellar careers to date, but with endearing, relatable language like one of my favourite chapters, but what about my dickhead boss? (laughs) I'm pretty much just rehashing what we talk about now, so I'll let the boys tell you more themselves, but I truly, truly enjoyed this one so much. And I hope you guys do too. Pronk boys, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, cheers, Sarah. It's great to be here. I am so excited. 
<laughs> I was listening to you guys on with your third co-author on the Unforgiving 60 podcast the other day, referring to yourselves as all collectively one third of an author, like you together make an author. <laughs> so I have two thirds of an author here today. I'm very excited. You've almost got a complete real author. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> one almost one complete real author. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations on your incredible new book, The Resilient Shield, which I have just found out has sold out nationally so I can't even believe how lucky I was to get a copy of this thank you how are you feeling stoked yeah absolutely the the response has been a bit uh, overwhelming we didn't know what to expect when we threw it out there of course we uh, hoped for the best and it's 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 sort of met all those expectations and more. Well, oh my gosh, you guys have done an incredible job. I was just absolutely gushing before we started recording about, I mean, everyone who listens to the show knows that I'm incredibly joy focused and positivity, but for some reason, war and the military is like a random obsession of mine. So I soaked up all the anecdotes and all the stories, but also found it so impressive how you've distilled military concepts and stories and made them translatable to people's everyday lives at a time where I think Resilience is something we need more than we ever had. People are facing loss of purpose, like you guys facing the end of your military careers and finding your why again. People are facing that more now than they ever had. And Mm -hmm. something you said about the resilience requirements of elite soldiers, solicitors and students differ by degree and not kind. So while we would, I definitely put you on a pedestal for all the incredible things that you've done and also, all of you are ex-Special Forces soldiers who all have MBAs too. Like, what is even – I don't even know how to compute that. Um, but you've done an incredible job of making it really practical and, and very, very timely. So it's an honour to have you on. Thank you. And it is funny. I mean, again, we were talking just before we came on. It is awesome to to hear those reflections and we thank you for them. But um, it is funny that that whole idea of, of – people being vastly different because of what they do. Dan's first book was called The Average 70 Kilo Dickhead. And I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more than 70 kilos now, but I think all of us uh, do view ourselves as average people who have had this amazing opportunity to do something cool, but it doesn't mean that we're, we, you know, our, our resilience needs are going to be a different kind, as, as you mentioned before. So we were fascinated about learning for ourselves how, this whole thing about resilience worked, how we could get better at it. And we're stoked that it has proved to be relatively universal. We're getting great feedback from a lot of different quarters on on the, the techniques we talk about. And I think that's why the cut through is so potent is because you are also very down to earth. Like there's a whole chapter about, but what about my dickhead boss? And I'm like, wow, <laughs> there's also some incredible science and very articulate intellectual material. But then there's chapters like that, that just gets everyone on your level. You know, everyone has had a dickhead boss in their time and knows they need resilience against that, which is why I start every episode with a little icebreaker by asking everyone what the most down to earth thing is about them to kind of break through that glossy surface you often, you know, our identities as perceived through the media or through social media. And you guys are authors now. As I mentioned, you have incredible military careers behind you, a host of amazing achievements. You all have MBAs. I mean, it's just outrageous. What are some really normal things about you other than your vintage Lamborghini, Dan, because that is not mm. yeah. the kind of material we're looking for in this section. No, that's, that's not normal. <laughs> what are some really relatable things about you guys? Look, I think for both of us, we're both uh, dads. So I've got three young kids, three young boys. So at the end of the day, my 
day-to-day life is is that of raising a young family, just me and my wife trying to do the best we can to raise the kids. And we have the exact same sort of stressors in that realm as anyone else, which is a great opportunity to flex some of the resilient shield type stuff. But yeah, it's all it's all get up, get the kids ready for school, get them off to school and, and do our thing. And, and you know, there's we've, we've got our day jobs as well. And these, these sort of things are just side projects. And like you say, it looks exciting and social media is a is a, a great forum to put forward this idealistic uh, but at the end of the day we, we've got normal day-to-day lives and then we've had this great opportunity to engage in this space and put this book out into the market i think for me sarah i'm i'm actually a shambles <laughs> like it, it's funny when people have this <laughs> perception of this you know i don't know whatever you see in the movies the elite soldier and you know the, the one that i always love apparently I'm quite noisy if I come home when my wife's asleep, I've been out or whatever, you know, I just sort of bang into every surface in the house. And so this idea of this sort of stealthy soldier sneaking in and being totally squared <laughs> away and, and my reality is, is very much I'm a bit of a klutz. So I do laugh when I think about what people might perceive an SAS card to be like in terms of that, I'm, I'm kind of the opposite. Well, I love that one of your very first academic references in the book where you like put a little, you know, reference note and then there's a note at the bottom of the page was about how people do have this big perception. I think it was a guy called Wade mm. maybe as being these like staunch, like tall built dudes who are always in uniform with like vests and shit all over them and you guys are like we're slightly shorter and a little bit rounder than you might expect <laughs> which That's I do right. not believe <laughs> I was yeah. disappointed that you didn't wear your uniforms today though even though you're retired I was like come on guys I mean you know we're videoing here <laughs> actually I'm, I'm surprised Dan's not in his back shed which is the you know it's got a better collection than the war memorial in terms of <laughs> souvenir <laughs> stuff from war zones that, that could have ticked that box. Well, I also have to say for people who have been listening to the podcast for a while, they'll remember Mark Wales and you know how much I just adore him as a person and his story, but I have told a story quite a few times about the military precision that comes back, even after you've transitioned back into your civvy life, how we were at Sam and Mark's wedding and, and you two were probably part of this story. I've just connected. And it started raining, the wedding was outside and we needed to move all the furniture inside really quickly. And all of us were like, oh, it's raining quick and like faffing about like headless chalks, like how do we get all the stuff inside? And the military guys just all, you could see you all just go into like this precision focus, not no words, you all just made eye contact and like 40 seconds later, everything was inside. I was like, wow, we're at a military wedding. That was pretty cool. It, it was very much a, a hold my beer sort of moment. <laughs> like, you know, was that you guys? Were you in I, that story? I was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god! No, that was a, a very cool evening. Yeah, I did like that part, and I loved. I mean, Mark and Sam, what amazing people, and what an amazing group of people at that wedding. But it made it better. You know, you'd, you'd think there'd be some circumstances where the the rain for the outdoor reception would be just the deal breaker, but it just. I think. The kind of, I guess, uh, the things you epitomise in Seize the A, I mean, people just enjoyed that. We had a cooler night because of that. We, we were able to, to really see the, the benefits. And, yeah, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, guys, we embraced the suck, really, is what we did. <laughs> I am now adopting Resilient Shield language in all of my life. I'm awesome. just announcing for you. <laughs> awesome. 
So that leads to the first section, which is your way to yay and how you got to where you guys are. And I mean, people can read about your stories in the book. And I loved reading those the anecdotes all the way back from childhood. But just to set the scene before we jump into the book itself and the concept of the resilient shield, because again, like I said, I think it's so timely for what we're going through right now. I think it's really important to go through all the chapters that you went through before that formed who you are and the views that you, you know, translate into the book right back from childhood and how you even decided you wanted to enter the military and then how you transitioned out of it and found who you wanted to be after that. So as you say in the book, you can't grab the fruit without the climb. There is no <laughs> linear pathway in life whatsoever. So take us through all those little chapters along the way so we can get some context before we jump into the book. I was on the planet first, so I'll go first. Um, <laughs> Dan and I were, were army brats. So our dad was, in hindsight, well, at the time as well, an amazing human. He, he was a really kick-ass dad. He was an army helicopter pilot and very much instilled in both of us this view that you could achieve anything. And not in a platitudinal sense, it was more like through his example that the dishwasher broke you know, yes, you could call a person to do that, but if a person can work out how to fix a dishwasher, then so could we. And so that kind of attitude led to a ton of stuffed household appliances. <laughs> so, <laughs> but also a, a view that you could do things, you know, you, you could try things and achieve things and, and work things out. And so that was when we look back, when we both look back, that was so fundamental to, mm. I guess, anything that we've achieved in our own lives. My story is much more boring than Dan in terms of I was always going to join the army. I did school cadets. I'd seen how much Dad loved it. He never pressured us either way. But that for me, I was the kid in cams at age 13. You know, but, <laughs> and I was a fat kid as well, which I, I sort of look back on. I think that was a, a great thing. I've still got some kind of weird Freudian psychological <laughs> issue and I think that'll keep me skinny for the rest of my life. But so, yeah, that was me, fat kid in cans. And I graduated from high school, took a year off because I, I was a bit young, but then went to the Defence Force Academy, four years there and done Troon, graduated to Infantry Corps. And again, with hindsight, you know, we'd, we'd been 30 years without a major, the military had been 30 years without a major deployment. So there was kind of no expectation that we were going anywhere. Our dad had been in for about that whole period post-Vietnam and had never deployed. And so it was very much this kind of peacetime army and, and none of our instructors had medals or any of that sort of stuff. So we graduated with no real expectation. Interestingly, it rained on my graduation parade at RMC and the, the urban myth, the old RMC myth, if it rains on your parade, you're going to war. And we sort of all, you know, super excited. Wow, it's raining on our parade. This must mean something. I've got to um, in there. No shit. Like, I was within... not excited standing in the fucking rain watching yet another one of your parades at the time. But sorry, continue. Yeah, I didn't share your enthusiasm. And, and we'll get to that because Dan was standing there in baggy mustard, three-quarter length pants and shoulder length hair. He was a, like a... Something out of an Avril Lavigne film clip. Three-quarter length pants. Wow. What a throwback. Oh, yeah. yeah. Let's, let's, let's be fair. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Put it in yeah, context, MC mate. was Put probably still in the charts. <laughs> <laughs> what a time to be alive. <laughs> if he wasn't in the charts, he was definitely still oh, in your heart, mate. Yeah. 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 Human vanilla rice. Never leave. No, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Ben. Go on. Hang on. Back to me. Um, so... 
it rained on our parade and yeah within two years i was in east timor the first push out of second battalion and so that really in hindsight kicked off this whole thing um so i came back from that did sa selection and then essentially spent the rest of my career in special operations and just an amazing sort of journey clearly met mark along the way people like that of that caliber it's just such an incredible place to work but yeah i was lucky enough to command it sort of everything from five-person patrol up to the entire unit. I deployed uh, a number of times to Afghanistan. I deployed on exchange with the Americans to Iraq, a couple of trips to Timor. I had a year in the UK on exchange studying. Just this incredible series of experiences. You know, some good, some bad, but certainly very fulfilling. At the end of my time as unit commander, I was looking at transition options and so took a year off to do an MBA, decided I wanted to get out of the army at that point, met back up with an old boss of mine, Tim Curtis, who'd been out for 10 years. And we had this serendipitous sort of crossing of paths. I think I I decided I was getting out of the army. I thought I was going to go to another big institution, you know, another big company. And Tim said, why don't we start this thing together, which became Metal, our, our company. And gee, I'm glad. Don't tell him that I said this, but I'm... <laughs> I'm glad that we met. I'm glad he was that safety net to allow me to try something like that. And I'm so glad we've done what we've done because it's given us these incredible opportunities that I wouldn't have got. And look, I talk a little bit about it in the book. For me, there was this transition. And when I really looked at it, there was a status-based transition that, you know, I had to let go of being special or being, you know, a lieutenant colonel or being in the SAS, these kind of things that I don't think consciously I was aware of. But that's been a big part of the, the journey and, and understanding with resilience. So, yeah, we, we've done this sort of consultancy for the last four and a bit years and along the way sort of did a lot of work in that leadership and resilience space. And the pandemic really gave us not only a chance in terms of a, a few quiet months work-wise, but also the catalyst, as you said, with the, the whole world suddenly getting their heads around how to deal with stressors and the, the unpredictable and the extraordinary, which really led us to codify our thoughts and our model into the book. I think it's just extraordinary. Like I feel like books and opportunities really come to you just when you need them or just when the universe needs them, just like you'll open the page of a book and a quote will come out. That's exactly what you need to hear. And I wouldn't have thought that someone's transition from, you know, and a position as a, in special forces to back to a consultancy or even studying or even just into family life and coming back to WA from Afghanistan, like you have such a, a different pace of life, but the message of losing your purpose and your title and your identity in one world and having to find it again in a new world, in a new normal, is exactly what everyone needs to hear right now. And your whole first chapter about uncertainty, unfairness in the world and not knowing why some things happen and trying to make sense of that but still living a fulfilling life, that's what everyone needs right now in the most you know acute way. So it's incredible how... You might never have known you'd become authors, but the minute that you did was exactly the minute when everything culminating over the last however many decades is what the world needs to hear, which I just think is, that's yay for me. That is so exciting, which is why I've just been like so thrilled to have you guys on. So yeah, what a story. And I know that, I mean, obviously that's a very, very short form version and I'm I'm, I'm going to tell Tim later that you did refer to him as your wife, which I think is really <laughs> lovely. <laughs> Between the three of you, together collectively making up one legitimate author, I love how much you guys are like brothers and wives and partners and like 
it's just this beautiful little threesome going on. <laughs> so, Tim. It would be cool if someone just started listening at that point. <laughs> yeah, I know. But, you know just, what have I walked into? Yeah, maybe they see joy in a, an interesting kind of trio way. <laughs> oh, so Ben was the fat kid. Dan, you were the the professional triathlete. Ooh, I mean, the that, opposite. That, a, uh, uh, um, yeah, let's let's back up there, Sarah. That's. I, I mean, I love that it's it's put in words. Professional failed, triathlete. I think the word failed will become before. <laughs> that, that was certainly my ambition. And don't get me wrong, I was a I was a chubby little kid as well. Uh, <laughs> Mum, God bless her. <laughs> Fed us up well. There was always, common always jam donuts waiting for us when we got home from school. And but yeah, I, I turned down uh, a little earlier than Ben. I, I couldn't even tell you why, but <laughs> I, think, I think it was. I, I realised that um, that you were going to be wearing three quarter pants, so well, you had no, to have good very, calves. So. They were very uh, flattering for my chubby form. So yeah, with it, well, the baggy <laughs> baggy shirts, and yeah, I was that guy with the you know that annoying little hat on nice. backwards, listening to gangster rap as a little fat 13-year-old mm. white kid. But for whatever reason, I got... Sorry, did you, did you mention the rollerblades? <laughs> I wasn't I going to. Focus I think it's important. Yeah, there was a rollerblading <laughs> stage. But once again, like the three-quarter length pants, this was the 1990s. So it's, it's not like a, you know, 2021 rollerblader. I'd like to think <laughs> anyway. Moving on. So, yeah, when I sort of hit my mid-teens, I became interested in middle distance running and so started running relatively competitively, had a bit of success with that just at a state level, nothing sort of extraordinary, but that led to an interest in triathlon. Got into the triathlons and when I got out of school was starting to show a small amount of promise as a, a junior triathlete. And so I did pursue that for about five years pretty seriously. I, in that period of time, I got out of school and moved down to the Gold Coast. And I'd done okay at school, not great, but well enough to get into an exercise science degree. Pretty much my parents and, and our aunt, good old Aunt Mary, both said, hey, we'll support you with your triathlon, but you have to study. So I went off to uni. I was, in my mind, adamant I was <laughs> going to be a professional athlete and the, the academia was just a, a necessity to get some support. Went through all of that and, and sort of thrashed the triathlon thing for five years. It became really clear I wasn't going to be the athlete I wanted to be. Had uh, finished my exercise science and, and done quite well in that in the end because I, I got it. It made sense to me. It was relevant to the triathlon. I was doing a lot of, of the, the biophysics and the biomechanics and we were in the exercise testing lab doing VO2 max testing. And, and so it was the first time I hit my academic straps. And at the end mm -hmm. of that, that was the year 2000, I took that year off to try and give triathlon a final nudge. And, and it, it was abundantly clear I was nowhere near the athlete that I, I wanted to be. There wasn't a, a future there. And and so that all fell through and <laughs> realised I had to grow up and, and get a real job. And, and I'd gone through my youth with no interest in the military at all. And as, as I said, I'd go along to Ben's graduation parade with shoulder-length dreadlocks and an earring and, and just sort of watch the officer cadets march around completely bemused by this whole spectacle and never did I imagine wow. I'd, I'd end up doing that same sort of being on that same parade ground doing albeit a very limited officer training but so when the triathlon thing fell through I'd done my exercise science didn't really want to work in that area I on a bit of a whim sat the graduate medical school admission test the GAM sat to to go and do postgrad medicine but at, that was the first time that the army started looking like a, a reasonable option for me because I just didn't have a career path and I was in my early 20s 
and started to probe into both of them, got myself into med school and then uh, dad actually told me about it, the, the scholarship scheme. So the army has a scholarship scheme to put people through postgraduate study. And so I, I managed to get an army scholarship, went off and did medicine. And it was at the first year of medicine. So I was full-time army. They picked me up, but I was at a civilian medical school. So fundamentally a uni student, still no real interest in the army at that point. It was just a means of funding my education. It was I saw it as free money, to be perfectly <laughs> frank. And then it was the end of that first year at med school, which, which 2001, when... Um, so I was going to interject because at this stage I'm deep yeah. and I'm about queen and country. I'm like, you know, do something for <laughs> your mean, nation no. and this is more than a job. And Dan said, so you're going to pay me yeah. to go to med school and I don't even have to do anything except study. <laughs> I'm in. Where do I sign? Yeah, that that was a bit of a a burr under my saddle for a little while. I mean, but if if there's any better example that pathways into the military can happen in completely different ways, and you can get you can have different goals, but still come out with really rewarding careers. I mean, you guys are a walking ad, really. Yeah, look, it 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 just made a, a whole bunch of sense, and the motivations initially weren't. Uh, probably the right ones, but they, they certainly became that. And it was end of 01 when, so Ben was over at SASR by that point. I still had no interest in special operations until the December holidays, uni holidays after my first year med school, September 11th had had happened and Australia had had pushed its initial special operations over to Afghanistan. I think, Ben, you're gearing up for the second push in very early 02. And I, I went over to Perth to visit Ben before he deployed. And, and that was when I met met some of the other blokes from the, the regiment and, and uh, went to the base and had a bit of a, a look and, and just got that insight. And it was like this light bulb moment. It was, I, I got to be involved. This is, this is for me. And, and so set myself the goal at the end of 01 to try and get into the SAS regiment. I, I still had to finish medical school and then do an internship and a, another year as a junior doc, do all my army. So it was a lengthy process but I, I had this focus again that I hadn't had in my life since the triathlon so it was a great way for me to just have mm. this long-term goal that motivated me to, to train I had my study and yeah then sort of fast forward finished my med school did my internship residency went in did all my basic army medical officer induction stuff and then the first chance I got which was in 2008 I went and did the SAS selection course and got through that and then there was a bit of a convoluted pathway but that that pushed me into the special operations direction and I, I managed to get the opportunity to serve with the, the second commando regiment and SASR over the next five years and so had that just that incredibly rewarding experience there and found a real passion for the the, the tactical medicine in terms of just applying the medical skill set in in that military environment and and so that while it didn't start off as having any real passion for either medicine or the military it really came together in this this incredible thing that's that's to, to date's been the most professionally rewarding period of my life to to go and do that. Then got out in 2014, did my MBA that year. Uh, actually, over a couple of years, I did it uh, via correspondence, so online, and and then started to. Well, I did a bit of fly in, fly out stuff. Worked as a ship's doctor, a couple of other different remote jobs. Then had an opportunity to go and help run a small hospital up in Queensland, so to work as the deputy medical superintendent of a hospital uh, for a good friend of mine who was the med super up there. So I did that for three years, working in ED and also helping run the facility. And then uh, my wife's uh, Adelaide 
girl and so we we moved back to Adelaide and and I, I picked up a role running the as the medical director for the state prison health service so I worked in in the the medical side of prison health for a few years and have gotten out of that earlier this year and am, am doing a little bit of ED work and a, a few other bits and pieces at the moment. And, and then, of course, the, the whole Resilience Shield project, my interest in that fell out of that transition out of defence where for the first year or two, I had a really wobbly time and it was a, just a, a huge adjustment. I'd lost my purpose once again I'd lost my identity and and it was at that stage that some of the cumulative experiences of my time particularly on operations in Afghanistan started to catch up with me and it just seemed paradoxical that I'd never been safer I'd never been earning more money I'd never been at home more and this stuff was starting to come back to bite me on the ass and so I, I started to just do a bit of a deep dive into what this resilience thing was why we were all able to stay so resilient in those high stress environments and then when you take the pressure off a lot of discharging soldiers that's when they start to have a few problems as i did and so yeah that that led to my deep interest in resilience well, i love that i think now everyone will understand a little bit better why i was like god why did i even research these guys before they came on you were so qualified incredibly articulate and the intellect shines through so much when you just refer to taking the gamsat which people study for like 8 years for <laughs> it's yeah. just like i just did medicine. Oh, I just oh. accidentally like became a doctor. No, I don't mean to diminish any of that. I, I, I am convinced. No, 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 you didn't. I am at convinced all. that that test has got exponentially harder than when I did it. Because <laughs> I, I was trying to help someone study for it a few years back, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't do half the. the so yeah, I think it was e it was easier when I did it. I'm sure of it. Oh, I doubt that. But I think that's something that is so unique about your book as well, is because you both, or well, all three of you, do have this incredible academic basis as well. You bring a lot of science to a lot of the conversations. There's anecdotal evidence, but there's a lot of science. There's a lot of diagrams. There's a lot of backing for certain concepts and certain patterns in the brain that adds a legitimacy that sometimes you don't get in books like this that are really trying to arm you with tools, which I loved so much and thought was a really, really different, valuable part. It's hard to write a different book right now, but you guys have done an incredible job and continue to just Thank blow you. me away. <laughs> well, it's awesome you say that. I mean, that sorry, that, that was a massive, really important thing for us that the last thing we wanted was another book saying, you know, I was at war, knee-deep in grenade pins and you should be more like me. A, because that's not the case because we'd seen so many of our friends who were by most metrics incredibly resilient. They were physically indestructible, they were mentally robust, and yet some of them were still having issues. So for us, it, this concept of resilience obviously needed to be more than just that. And so that was part of the exploration. But the other thing for us is that, you know, we didn't see ourselves as that different. We, we'd done this job, which seems different to a lot of people, but we'd done a lot of training for it. We'd prepared for it. You know, it, it wasn't, uh, I guess, that, that sort of, I guess, superhuman type thing. And so it was really important to us that whatever we did was scientifically backed and applicable sort of beyond just our own, I guess, uh, limited experiences. 
I don't know about you guys, but I get such a rush of motivation and energy to keep learning and upskilling when I hear from our guests each week. If you're feeling the same, I am so thrilled to share that I'm hosting a free small business bootcamp series presented by our partner in Yay, PayPal, putting some incredible guests, connections and targeted tools at your disposal from the comfort of your own home. There are three webinars in the series so far, optimizing your online strategy for sales, which we've already had, but it is still online for you to go back and catch up. It blew me out of the water. I took so much away from our panelists. So make sure you go and have a watch. Social media strategy for small businesses, the topic we all want to know about. And thirdly, buy now, pay later, exploring the future of payments. Pop September 23rd and October 21st for those remaining two in your calendars. And I've included the link to register in the show notes. One giant silver lining of the past year or so has been getting access to some of the cleverest minds and their wisdom without having to go anywhere. So don't miss the chance to take advantage while you can. Hopefully see you there, neighborhood. And I think something else that's really evident in the way that you write and present a lot of these concepts, and it is even explicitly mentioned, is the relationship between resilience and vulnerability. And from three SAS guys who have just not been scared in situations that terrify most of us and we'd freeze, you know, like who, who you have these preconceptions about your masculinity and your strength. And I think it was so important that you did share, like Dan, you shared that you did have a hard time transitioning mm. back into life. There, there was a lot of trauma and that being vulnerable isn't the anathema to resilience. They actually go hand in hand, which makes it even more relatable because people don't think here's these really fearless SAS guys telling me what to do because of course they wouldn't be scared of anything. You actually opened up about those parts, which I think made it even more, like it hits even harder when you see that you are just people who have vulnerabilities as well. well exactly as Ben just said as well, it's, it's what you're trained to be resilient against like you you can train resilience and mm. so and that's an important thing and and it's when you look at at things like traumatic experiences and stressors it's relative to the individual it's not you can't compare your trauma to someone else's it just doesn't work that way it's what you're resilient against and so for someone like a, a special operations soldier they can go off into a combat environment and that that's not necessarily stressful for them but but you know put them in put them on stage and tell them to sing and they'll be panicked like anyone else, you know, because they don't have resilience against that <laughs> stress. And, and so I think that's a trap that people fall into. And I've had it a number of times at, at presentations and things, people opening up, coming and seeing me in a break and saying, oh, you know, it's nothing compared to you, but, you know, I've, I've had this happen. And, and some of those are hugely stressful things for these individuals. And so I think we have this tendency to diminish our own experience relative to someone else's. And we, we don't, we, we need to not view it like that. It's not a competition. If it's real to us, then it's real. And it's that balance of the stressor versus your resilience against that stressor. And if the stress overwhelms your resilience, then that's going to be a, a traumatic experience for you. Totally. And I think you bring a lot of concepts in, like even the, the first three chapters are on the sense-making concepts that help really break down the way our brain works. And the way that we are so different and stress isn't something that can really be measured because, and particularly in a pandemic, like people are trying to measure, mm. there's a lot, it's a heavy news week this week. There's a lot going on for other people, yeah. but that doesn't mean that you're not having a challenge because your world is dismantled even in a different way to how someone else's is. So I think that also is particularly timely. I 
mentioned before, there is so much I took out of this book and I didn't know where to start and I've written so many notes, but I thought maybe it might be easier (laughs) to get you guys to sort of introduce the concept of the shield, what it is, a little bit of a taster into how you chose to break down the chapters and the way that you brought in anecdotes versus like the way that you've even managed to, in the same book, compare life to a chicken street carpet shop (laughs) and also talk about wabi-sabi in Japan and sisu in Finland and Richard Harris, our favourite episode on this show, The Cave Diver, and then also dickhead bosses and porpoising in a Chinook. Like, I don't even know how you did it. So introduce (laughs) us to the Resilient Shield, the concept, the big takeaways that you think we all need to hear right now. So I think from the, the genesis of the model, Dan's experiences were the catalyst. And as I mentioned before, it didn't seem to make sense on the surface that he could get out of the military, get away from all of that stress and then have the, the, the negative experiences. And it also didn't seem to make sense in that, you know, he's a together dude, he's physically fit, he's mentally with... <laughs> I can't even say that without laughing. Well... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's advanced, <laughs> retired from three-quarter pants, he wears full-length pants now, he's come a long That's way. Right. He doesn't rollerblade anymore. Um, so Are you sure? On... <laughs> well, I'm not. <laughs> so on paper, he's looking all right. And yet, you know, he can still have these issues. And so... The big thing for us when we sat down to try and nut out a model of resilience, A, it needed to be scientifically backed. It needed to be dynamic in that it could grow with us and it could surge and flex to different points in our life and also to different life experiences, different people's life. It needed to be multifactorial. We'd seen a lot of outstanding resilience-related stuff out there that talks only about one single layer. So it might talk about gratitude and mindfulness or it might talk about physical fitness or it might talk about the importance of sleep. We, we want to work out how all those things interrelated and crucially it needed to be modifiable. There was no point having a, an academic document that sort of explained why you were having depressive issues. It needed to be something we could get better at. We could look at ways of improving. So that was the parameters we set ourselves. We ended up necking it down to, to the six layers that we've spoken about in the book, the, the innate layer nature, nurture, genetics, epigenetics, your character, your personality, your values. The mind layer is is the the next fundamental one, which includes everything spiritual and psychological. It includes your perspective, your mindset, your views, but also, as Tim loves to say, your ability to flush the nonsense out. So things like meditation, things like mindfulness, things like gratitude, what you store in your head and how you process things. Uh, The body layer is three words, sleep, diet, and exercise. Social layer, absolutely crucial. How we interact with people, particularly those outside of a work setting, you know, the the social connections we're likely to have for, for our entire life. And then the professional layer, which talks about our ability to find purpose and virtuosity in what we do in a professional context. And we wrap it all up in this idea of adaptation, the idea that if you can develop competence in each of those previous layers or recognise competence in them, then you're essentially ready for whatever the world's going to throw at you. When the, the zombie apocalypse comes, even though you might not have seen it before, you can adapt those characteristics 
going forward. Or as we outline, and you know, you mentioned Harry before, when an unprecedented event occurs, you've got a bunch of people stuck in a, a flooded cave. Guess what? We've got a guy here who's got a huge amount of skills in anesthesia, huge amount of skills in cave diving, brings them together and, and goes and, um, well, not single-handedly, but it was fundamental to mm. saving the day. Yeah, I think one of the things I loved so much about that episode was that people are so flooded. In fact, you guys actually managed to scientifically prove and also express so articulately a concept that I've been babbling around trying to explain for so long. And now I am so grateful that you have proven that it's true that, you know, the information overload that we face in our life has increased at a pace that our brain's physical evolution can't keep up with, which causes all kinds of problems. But because of the increased visibility of everyone else's lives, we're subject to so many expectations and norms about what happiness looks like, what success looks like, what joy looks like. And Harry, to me, was such a perfect example that if you have random things that light you up that don't make sense, being an anesthesiologist or an anaesthetist and being a technical cave diver are not related. They don't necessarily help each other. You have to organize your life in a way that allows you to do both. But he stuck to it and there was only one of him in the entire world that could save those <laughs> boys. And that to me was like, you have just proven the theory that whatever weird stuff makes you happy, you need to do that because one day that exact combination will be what someone else in the world needs, which is just thrilling to think that our weirdness is what makes us special, not our not our uniformity. It's the stuff that makes us oddballs. I love that and I, I love you know, the flip side, Dan said that the resilience and stress is not a competition. You know, people yes. shouldn't be thinking, oh, I didn't have to save, you know, kids from a, a flooded cave or I didn't have to go to war, therefore I don't deserve to feel stress. Our weirdness, the different things that stress us, it shouldn't be about sort of working out a relativity or, you know, what's better or, or more worthy of either stress or resilience. It's about accepting that, hey, if this is having an impact on me, positive or negative, then lean into the positive and deal with the negative. It's not about comparing it to other people. Yeah, absolutely. Something that quite a few different chapters kind of cover these concepts and that's really pivotal to the idea of CZA is redefining your happiness around input versus output, but also in terms of positivity versus negativity and embracing the suck as we spoke about before, like negativity will always be there. And then also when you do find your purpose and you do have your goals, that idea of micro goals and not always needing to jump to the end. I always say in my book, it's called dream big, plan small. For you guys, it's expressed as always a little bit further. And that concept just, it hits me in the gut every single time of just how much society hails this idea of like here, starting point, destination and nothing in between. Yeah. But in between is the bit that that's life, yeah. you know, and I get so frustrated. I'm like, it's not the destination. So how, especially with you guys having reinvented your identities completely a couple of times in your life, yeah, talk us through those kind of concepts in the book. Yeah, I think it, it is crucial. I think social media has a lot to answer for here because we do just see those one-minute snapshots of people doing something outrageous or excellent or outstanding. And and it, what gets missed in that is the 20 years of training that went into that, you know. And so we, we get these false ideals of what's positive and it, it makes us feel bad about ourselves because we can't achieve that. You miss that bit in between. And what, one of the sort of... Uh, you know, reference points that that I think is great here is you, you talk about someone 
getting on top of Mount Everest. And and if you were to hop in a helicopter and go up on top there, then then that's one thing. But it's it's nowhere near the same as if you train for years and years and you climb that thing and you get to the top and, and get that reward. And and even if you, you don't get to the top, that's probably exponentially better than just taking that shortcut and getting plonked on top of the, the hill for the, the view. And so the happiness is in the the struggle and it's it's the reality of it and and I think uh, you know setting those goals working towards those goals whether you hit them or not you're going to end up a better version of yourself but just continuing to evolve and, and we talk about that always a little further and you may not know where that end goal is or you may have set that lofty goal as I did with triathlon that I fell miserably short of but that allowed me to uh, you know have this foundation of, of physical fitness that was then applicable to training towards the military stuff and it also gave me that discipline that was also translatable across to the studying of medicine and these kind of things so it's it's nothing's ever lost and and it, i think it's very important for us to as humans to set these goals and chip away at them in, enjoy the journey and if you get to that goal great and then set it set a new one and keep going from there if you don't and it takes you somewhere else uh, you know you're going to end off better off than if you didn't set the goal in the first instance this for me is where so many of these the concepts are interrelated and i've got a much better appreciation of uh, meditation mindfulness and gratitude i think all three of them have got a pr problem maybe particularly amongst <laughs> aussie males in that you know if you even as i'm saying these words i'm thinking sort of mung beans and flying robes and incense <laughs> and, you know, it's not as accessible to, I guess, the, the mindset I used to have. But that idea, particularly things like gratitude, our own research and a, and a ton of other bodies of research has suggested that that is an incredibly powerful thing. It's correlated so strongly with global resilience that it's worth looking at. And part of gratitude is accepting what you've got and another part is that concept of micro goals and being able to put markers of what you've achieved and to be thankful and to be to acknowledge, pat yourself on the back for having done that. And I think to Dan's point, it's not about scaling Everest. It's about, you know, developing that first plan to start walking upstairs with a, a pack on your back and then acknowledging that that's one, one step of the way because... To your point, and we love that John Lennon quote, life's what happens when you're, you're busy making other plans. I mean, this is what we've got. It's not the end state. It's the, the process. And Dan has a, a beautiful, is it a Buddhist philosophy, mate, the, the sort of enjoy the journey, not the destination? Yeah, yeah. Look, I think it goes across a, a lot of philosophies and religions, but yeah, B- Buddhism, that that impermanence of everything is is a underlying theme there. and. And yeah, that that does tie in, as you were saying, to that whole mindfulness, like being present and not just being future focused or dwelling on the past, just doing what you can achieve in the moment, being present, having those meaningful engagements and, and doing that, yeah, always a little further. I love always a little further. It's so simple, but it's so tangible. Like you could just write it down and apply it to anything that you're not, you don't need to rush to the end. It's just a little further. And I think at the moment, particularly, you know, on the eastern side of the country where it's a hard thing to wake up every day and not be able to leave your house, that changing the goalposts from I need to stay as happy as I was before or I need to be as productive as I was before, you know, that just get a little bit further today. That's all you need to do is suddenly so much more achievable, which then makes your mindset better because then you don't feel like a failure because you're not being, you know, working efficiently or you're not achieving what you're supposed to achieve. I love that mentality. And if 
I highlighted anything in the book, it was that just, just a little further, like stop trying to A type, even with rest, you know, I'm like, oh, we've got four slowdown lockdown. Yay. And then I A type my resting. I'm like, okay, how am I going to DIY renovate my house or spring clean or like have, you know, the most baths of any person in the world, you know, like I can't just relax. So that just a little bit further. You don't need to go the whole way. That was really, really valuable. Did you guys find anything when you were writing? Like I kind of find something that was another way that you translated a military concept into something really useful for the masses was the after action report and the idea of debriefing and writing down, just journaling. Like it ties into the same importance of writing things down to consolidate your thoughts and what you learned. I found when I was writing my book, I learned a lot of things that I didn't realize I knew or that I hadn't consolidated just through the process of trying to tell someone else the concept. Did you guys pick up anything that was you that was like an aha moment for yourselves while you were writing or researching? Certainly for me, there's a couple of things. At a global level, putting this down on paper is exactly the same as doing a journal or doing a what we call a resilience action plan it makes it very difficult to then not live what you're, you're preaching. And so we've done all this research about, you know, how important, I keep using meditation because that was my aha moment, you know, coming to that through this this process. But, yeah, it, it now makes it very hard for me to, to say, oh, I'm too busy to meditate because I've got all this research in the back of my head that says, and, and in fact, we, we had a guy on our podcast called Gary Goro who said, look, if you haven't got 20 minutes in your day to meditate, then you need to be meditating for 40 minutes, you know, like if you're that busy, then you really need this stuff. And so those kind of things I find help really keep you to account. And I I love that always a little further has resonated with you, Sarah, because that has been a mantra with me for years. It's, it's got a connection back into the British SAS and it's an amazing poem by a guy called Flecker, but it is always in the back of my head and it makes it really hard for me. The classic for me, every morning I come out of the train and, and I've got the, the incredibly steep staircase or the the escalator, you know, I've got this absolute choice at the start of my day and, and there's this <laughs> little annoying dickhead in the back of my brain going always a little further and I, I take the stairs instead of the elevator. <laughs> but those kind of things, they're useful. They, they do move the needle in my life and I, and I hope in other people. I find the same thing with that stair versus elevator thing. It, it always, and, you know, sadly, the lots of veterans, Ben, Tim and I in, included, have got mates that, that lost their legs in Afghanistan Afghanistan, Iraq, and and I look at that and I think, well, you know what? I've got legs. I'm going to use them, and it's just a reminder. These small things, like to, to it sounds a little bit silly to be grateful for having legs, but it's a, a recalibration that that we underwent, and you you, you come back and certainly. Uh, I did with a completely different view of everything here and this this newfound appreciation and this this complete recalibration, all the stuff that we take for granted because that's human nature when you're living a, a comfortable middle-class existence and then you see these other experiences and it, it changes things. All of a sudden you, if you can realise just and if you can be grateful for the little things in life, it's uh, it, it changes that whole mindset and it's so positively correlated, that optimism and that gratitude is so positively correlated to resilience. Yeah, absolutely. Gratitude is so important. And not to take away that people are facing a lot of challenge at the moment. There'll always be stories of trauma that's worse than yours and better than yours and whatever. Um, But just to have a little bit of an awareness of perspective, I think is really important. I think that is a really interesting balance that, you know, 
part of what we're talking about is not belittling what you're going through because as Dan said before, it's not a competition. It is real. These stressors are real and, and we shouldn't be saying, oh, we shouldn't be stressed by a lockdown because, you know, Kabul just got rolled and, and imagine being a, a prominent female in the Afghanistan infrastructure now. But by that same token, you know, having that awareness to provide that counterbalance that what we've got is pretty good, you know, being able to be grateful for what you've got. I think they're, they're actually nice counterpoints to one another. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard to find a middle ground, I think, with all the noise yeah. going on at the moment, but important to be aware of balancing out the two. Yeah. Before we uh, move on to the last section, which is taking your identities completely away from the you that is productive, that has titles and just goes back to pure joy, like the unburdened wonder about the world of a child, for example, and that's my favourite section because we indulge in it so little. Just a guilty pleasure question for me is around the idea that I've talked about this book so many times and people listening are going to roll their eyes because they know how often I talk about it, but there's a book called Emergency Sex, which is about the four, you guys might have heard of it, the four UN workers who end up meeting each other in Somalia, Rwanda, uh, Haiti, like the big 90s and early 2000s disaster zones and how they fight for their life to get back to stability and safety and their family. They make it back and then they hate it so much that they have to go and find another war zone. And it's so interesting to, especially for someone like me who's so fascinated in international conflict and war zones, how you can adapt your body to chaos and to adrenaline and it can become so addictive, not because it's sexy, like I think that's a bit of an mm, over-glamorization yeah. because it's traumatic and it's horrible, but you can only think of the minute you're in and you're so needed, you're within a structure, you have a clear sense of what you're meant to do each day and it's, I can imagine, so difficult to, to leave that and then recalibrate to calm, which people have outside of the military. They grow up in chaos and then they can't have stable relationships or they you know, are used to adrenaline and they don't know how to rest. Are there any parts of that life that you miss? Do you miss all of that, that kind yeah. of that kind of crazy like action well, and jump out of the, the helicopter? You and, you know? Beautiful, and uh, I like that that emergency sex. That I don't know if you've seen a movie called Whiskey Tango Foxtrot with Tina Fey in it as well. Like that's super cool. And okay, got I've it. I've seen all of them. I've seen all of them, Ben. All of them. <laughs> And and even in our professional work, we do a lot of work with crisis management. And even though the context is terrible in an exercise or real life, you know, fatality on an industrial site or whatever, people do tend to, to rise to crises. And there's a couple of characteristics. One, all the bullshit, your, your American Express bill, your, your deadline, all that stuff just fades away because you've got this one crystal focus so important so you've got a really clear purpose generally people arise there's obviously all the um, neurochemical sort of responses that you know including natural opiates that, that give you a high in relation to those sort of stresses so there's a lot of good stuff going on but i think it's important to recognize that that is not the normal you know and particularly your body's reaction to that it's not designed to be chronic it's supposed to get you through for that that stress period and so even though it does feel great in the moment i think that recognition that you can't chase that dragon forever it doesn't kind of work like that so i don't know for me personally i'm just super thankful genuinely thankful to have had the opportunity to experience those kind of things i'm super thankful i got through in one piece i'm super thankful you know i i haven't had 
sort of bad issues as a result of it. But I'm also, I think, can can recognise that, you know, I, I don't need to keep chasing that, you know, that even though it was excellent, that it's it's not an enduring or sustainable way for me to live my life. There's another brilliant book to add to that list of references. I don't know if you've seen this one, Sarah. It's called My, My War Gone By, I Miss It So. I can't remember the author, Ben. You might... You might know that, but it was a it was a, yeah. a UK bloke who ended up uh, falsifying some war reporter documents just to get over to the the Bosnian conflict and the former Yugoslavia, and and just got so involved and and had such a sense of purpose there and that camaraderie amongst other war reporters that he just couldn't fit back in back in the UK and found himself more and more. And then I think he ended up heroin addicted. But it it was it's a pretty sad but very powerful story of exactly that same thing and and as Ben said you know I had I imagine every every one of us had the same experience of that just that complete flow state when you were engaged in say something like a combat uh, environment or responding to a, a, a casualty where that is your entire focus the, the remainder of the world just disappears and and you know you are completely in the moment and in in, in that respect it's a very mindful uh, sort of state to be in and you are 100% focused and and it's addictive I, I found it quite addictive that rush of being in those high pressure environments using your skills at the the pointy end from a medical perspective for me was the most professionally satisfying thing I've done to date but with that comes that constant activation of all your stress hormones and you recalibrate to that that hyper alert hyper anxious state and and you, it's like revving a car engine at, at 5,000 revs constantly it's it's got to break down eventually but yeah as Ben said I think the it's great to have had those experiences and then it's just a matter of I think as you you move on realizing that that you can't get back there and you probably don't want to get back there because there's there's no future in that well for me personally as a as a, a dad and a, a husband it's unsustainable but then it's a matter of what what can I do that's you know, age and, and family appropriate to replace some of that professional satisfaction without that same kind of toxic stress on the body. Yeah. There's a, an awesome movie called The Odd Angry Shot. I don't know if you've seen it. It's Graham Kennedy and Brian Brown movie. It's about the essays in Vietnam and it's a, a real cult sort of film. And the final scene of that, they, it's this story, this patrol in Vietnam, essays patrol, and they go through all these things and their mate gets injured and, you know, all these profound life-changing things and they come back to Australia the final scenes, them going for a beer, and they've just had this enormous life-changing experience. And they, they get into the pub, and barman, oh, you boys just back from Vietnam? They're like, yeah. They go, how was it? They're like, yeah, it's all right. It's rather moves on. And I, I had actually a really similar experience coming back from my first trip in Afghanistan. I, I just got back, had no one sort of greeted me. You know, I, I just sort of sort of wandered off and, and went to the, the Ocean Beach Hotel in Perth and caught up with a, a friend randomly and she said um oh you know where have you been i haven't seen you around and i said oh, i've just been in afghanistan and like you know had had this profound life-changing first real war type experience and she said oh yeah yeah what was that like, and I was like oh, <laughs> yeah and she's like oh yeah and then just onto this other conversation it was just it was beautiful in that you know this was everything and nothing you know it was a massive thing for me but the world keeps going on and and that was wonderful but I think that sort of set that calibration in terms of the, the stuff you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I, it's nowhere near the same, but we spent a month in Rwanda working in rural Rwanda, so no running water, no anything, working in a school. We did a lot of work with survivors of the genocide. And even in that, at that time I was still a lawyer and I really wanted to go into 
one of the tribunals or some kind of international conflict war area and I actually hated coming back home like it really and I wasn't even even in a conflict zone but the simplicity of their happiness that was my first big separation between happiness and success I came back to an incredibly successful life and career and could not be okay with it for months I was so unsettled I had loved that just simplicity of waking up and appreciating nature and singing and only focusing on them the next minute but I also think I learned there that when people say listen to your body, I agree. Obviously, it tells you lots of things. It's very clever, but it doesn't make take account of adrenaline because adrenaline mm. tells your body this feels great when it's actually most of the time not great for you. It's necessary, <laughs> but sometimes burning the candle at both ends and not sleeping feels great. Sometimes my body says keep doing this. This is amazing, but it's something I think we do need to watch out for that your body sometimes likes things and thrives on things that it can't sustain and that aren't maybe great for it. <laughs> I've got to pull you up there, Sarah. You, you, well, you've very last section. You've gone and done that. Oh, um, yeah, sorry. That, it's nothing like you, that that comparison thing. You know, we, we've all got to stop doing that. That's exactly like our experience. <laughs> you know? Sorry. Yeah, I mean, going to re- regional Rwanda is huge. It's huge and it's it's so abnormal and it gives you this new perspective and it's, it is not, it is exactly like us going off and, and experiencing things in in uh, our world. So, yeah, don't, don't do that. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Love it. Thank you. <laughs> so very last couple of questions. The last section, as I mentioned, is all about play and what you do to help yourself detach and get a brain escape. And just, I describe them as those activities that make you forget what time it is. When you go back to that mindful focus, but not for a professional outcome, not for like winning or getting better or self-development. And the example I use is I spent a really long time going for walks with my dog, but listening to a finance podcast, or I'd have a bath and I'd try and learn a language. Like I just wasn't letting myself enjoy for the sake of enjoyment. So what do you guys do other than rollerblading <laughs> to... Oh, if I'm being honest, I, I would love to crack out the rollerblades again. I can't now. You've gone and ruined it for yes. me. Yes. But <laughs> I'd have to have to wear a mask. But oh, well, we're all wearing masks anyway, aren't we? So it might be the perfect time. You should do it. I'm going to see you rolling over. Oh, like, oh my I god! It's more socially acceptable. I've cracked out the skateboard again with my uh, eight-year-old, and, <gasps> and so I, Paris 2024. Here we oh, come. No, no, there'll be none of that. Maybe, yeah, maybe my son. I'm not sure. Uh, I enjoy skateboarding. I mean, anything that that gets you into that flow state, like you're talking about, and and the beauty of that is you don't need to be good at it. You just need to be operating at the level of your capability. And so I've, I've started playing the piano a little bit. I love woodworking. I'm shit at it, but um, I've, I've built, built yes. a, a home bar in my man cave and I'm constantly working on that. And there's no right angles and nothing quite lines up and it's all sort of uh, rustic is the, <laughs> the term I'm using. But I, I just find that immensely satisfying. <laughs> and, and when I'm building something, doing something with my hands, when I'm skating with my little guy, when I'm trying to learn something on the piano, that's for me, that turns off that sort of monkey mind, that default mode network. And and I do love to meditate. I, I love to lie in ice baths these these days. I find that uh, just outstanding. Another <gasps> way it's hard to think of anything else when you're in an ice bath, you're just focused on that moment. And yeah, yeah so there's, there's a whole range of things that don't need to be those high adrenaline type things to get into that flow state it's just something challenging yourself and yeah maybe I will crack out the rollerblades again (laughs) (laughs) but I love that you mentioned you don't need to be good at it because I think that 
suddenly turns like we turn all our hobbies into jobbies like I, I get so like <laughs> oh I like this oh I better be professional at it like I better go to Paris in 2024 because I love skateboarding and it's nice to just let yourself off the hook like it has to be something that you're not good at because that's amazing and I, I love the ice bath thing too we had Wim mm. Hof on the show last yeah, year he screamed the whole episode he screamed he was just so excited <laughs> about life how are you good <laughs> Like, how many kids do you have? Three kids. Like, he just yells everything. So invigorating. I'm a big Wim Hof fan. I love the breathing and I love him. A friend and I have downloaded the same version of him doing the guided breathing. And, you know, just his, his little comment, be in this moment. And, you know, we, we, we'll say that to each other in the, in the funny dark chat. Like, it's, it's so, there's so much goodness. But for me, my happy place is drawing. I've, I've come to it late. Same thing, learning a new skill I think is, is like cool and humbling and all that sort of stuff. Mm. But, gee, that, that is just so meditative and so restorative, you know, and I kind of like the fact that at the end you've got something like Dan's Bar, you know, there's a, there's a tangible <laughs> sort of artefact at the end and, you know, maybe it's not the, well, it's definitely not the best, you know, but it's something that, that's mm. kind of a byproduct of your, your kind of flow state. Yeah, amazing. And it's interesting that they're very tactile things that you can't be on your phone or multitasking yeah. at the same time. It's like precludes that opportunity, which is generally what I gravitate towards. What about like do you guys ever watch Netflix? Do you actually, you know those people who are like, I don't even have a TV. Do you watch no. stupid <laughs> shows? Like do you, do you do anything like that? <laughs> yeah, we've just, my wife and I have just come off the back of like, well, it wasn't really binging, you know, we, we sort of limited it to an episode or two and like Parks and Rec. I, I love oh. Amy Poehler and I mean, Tina Fey's not in that, but that kind of humour. So, yeah, no, definitely. I'm, I was going to say guilty pleasure. I'm not even guilty about it. Yeah, just, just a pleasure. It's, it's just a pleasure. <laughs> yeah, certainly the same. I don't watch a lot of TV. We don't have it on a lot in our house and I'll, I'll generally prefer to do other things, but, yeah, I do. Oh, Dan's one of these guys. Yeah. He's got a life. No. Wow. No, yeah, no, get off the show. Not at all. No, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but, um, I have no devices. Oh my god! Yeah, the people, especially from wellness, who are like, we don't have a TV in our home, and I'm like, I admire that so much. You are an enlightened human being, but I am binging yeah. the shit out of at least seven series at once. Like, <laughs> what are there any military shows that you've seen that you're like, that's the closest? representation i always ask this question because i'm like i want Man. to rewatch it i've watched them all like eighty five thousand times for me actually odd angry shot the, the one i mentioned before is oh, better in terms of not glamorizing and capturing the mess and the mateship and all that sort of stuff i loved zero yep. dark version. i was just gonna I say the same the, thing you know yes this is the ubl raid but there's about five seconds of gunplay in the whole movie and that to me is the whole certainly my experience with the targeting game that it is about that sort of preparation and it's all those unsung heroes that are doing mm. the intelligence analysis and the imagery and the human, the sedient and all of this sort of fusion and it's one step forward, two steps back, there's uncertainty, there's a ton of risk in improving these things and there's, you know, that, that kind of po political layer to it. That to me really encapsulated, I guess, a lot of the contemporary special ops experience and, and you know, it finishes with, you know, super cool quad MVGs and, you know, black hooks <laughs> and dogs and, 
and all that sort of stuff. But 95% of it is not. It's that frustrating sort of slog, hard work builder. I think also the way they depict that final raid was was awesome in that it wasn't that typical explosive, everything goes exactly to plan. It was confusing and there was engagements and there was pauses and there was, you know, what's going on here? And, and so it was sort of, I've, I've said that exact same thing a number mm. of times when people have said, you know, what what looks most like real, I think that movie probably portrays it the best. I'm so glad you guys said that because I love that movie so much. But I, I noticed that unlike most Hollywood blockbusters, there's no music in the raid. It's very quiet, yeah. which makes your senses heightened to them breathing and what you would imagine they would actually hear, which is nothing, just the wind or each other's voices just saying numbers and codes. Like it was just... So interesting because usually that wouldn't fly in a Hollywood movie because our attention span is so short. We'd need like color and Blackhawks all the way, but it was dead quiet for like 25 minutes, which I liked about the movie. I thought it was really great. Mark Wiles and I have had this ongoing discussion of the (laughs) fact that we did need soundtracks, like, you know, that our actual raids in Afghanistan would have been so much cooler if we had a border (laughs) soundtrack. And unfortunately, the the sort of upshot of that is it would probably be more like the Benny Hill thing music than than anything cool. But we went through, I think the one I wanted was the the immigrant song by Led Zeppelin, you know, (laughs) come out of the dust with, ah, the big Viking war cry and the thumping guitar, like, yeah. You should be able to choose your own song as well that just comes on every time you, like, come out of a cupboard or something. (laughs) (laughs) When you come out on your rollerblades, hey! (laughs) Gliding into the compound. I lived in Paris. I I went to uni at Seance Po for a year. And the cops, there's a quarter called the Marais, which is like a very flamboyant, arty, you know, and the cops only in that suburb rollerblade in the tightest uniforms, but they're legitimate police on rollerblades. I'm like, what if they go on the lawn? (laughs) Downstairs. It's funny you say that because when we were having that rollerblade discussion, and I must admit I have not thought about rollerblades for a good decade. (laughs) But... Then I realised the only adult I've seen rollerblading in the last, about that time, is a, a French dude that lives in our suburb. His kids are at our school. Ex-cop, and, and there he, you go. He could be an ex-cop, I'll ask him. <laughs> but he genuinely looks like he's loving it. It kind of looks fun, but I think you have to be French to get away with it. Yeah, maybe. I think you guys could get away with it. That's the other thing. It's so interesting. When people people talk about fear of failure all the time, we talk about it a lot on their show, imposter syndrome, blah, blah, blah. I always say, uh, if I told you no one would ever know that you failed, would you care about failing? No. Their worth isn't questioned if they fail at something in private, which is the same as like once you give yourself permission to look like a complete idiot, you enjoy life so much more. Just own that you're a dag and then you don't care what your play to is because you don't care that you look like an idiot. Life is so much more fun. <laughs> and paradoxically, you look less like an idiot when you're able to to own it and not pretend you're, you're this cool guy girl you know like it's yeah it's funny totally when you get rid of the dreadlocks and you drop your (laughs) pant length a little bit you're just a whole new person Ironically, I've got photos of, I've got a great one of you standing with your back, us facing each other at one of your parades and you're in, you know, you're in uniform, you're high and tight down at RMC or it must have been RMC, I think. 
Iron Giant. Haircut-wise, and, and I've got this shoulder-length, just horrid-looking ratty hair it's not in dreads at the time but it's shoulder length the earrings in i've got these gaudy white sunnies and yeah it's a good it's a good contrast of they're probably <laughs> fake oakley's remember those fake oakley's that they everyone used well to get from yeah. Like them. yeah nice you got to unearth some of these for the episode i'm not going to use your like proper fancy headshots they're going to be all old cringeworthy photos just for the day sounds you good know? awesome <laughs> <laughs> second last question which i think you should answer for each other what are the most weird quirky things about you that don't normally come up in conversation and that you didn't let slip in the book the more embarrassing the better tread lightly here <laughs> uh, there's probably embarrassing stuff from our oh, youth God. that that <laughs> probably doesn't need to be dredged up here <laughs> or it absolutely does this is the best part of the whole episode the random shit that comes out when you just <laughs> Dig a little deeper. I, I think Dan's uh, <laughs> this story ends well, but I think Dan's <laughs> love life, the plot arc of, of his love life, has been quite interesting. <laughs> now, I'll fully declare it started off with me looking very jealously at the fact that that a I think you jumped before you got expelled, but you you basically left under a bit of a cloud from our all boys school and and went to a co-ed school and discovered that you, you had a bit of game um, and tore it up tore two it years up. ahead of you and, and still <laughs> hopeless and so yeah you, you, and it's paradoxical Sarah because this was the rollerblading phase like, I can't <laughs> it, it seems that you were getting a lot of girlfriends while you were dreadlock rollerblading through something in that pants. I think the French get a lot of girlfriends too there's a there's a connection there French and yeah. Taipan yeah. sensitive new age guy that's what we my, all want. My mind went immediately yeah. there, Sarah, to a, a, a shoplifting incident when we were in our teens. And <gasps> no, no, no. Shouldn't, shouldn't go. Yeah, well, yeah, go. I've forgotten about I bought that. this up at Ben's wedding, actually. I reckon I, <laughs> just his early forays into clandestine operations that were just <laughs> not special showing. Ops. Yeah, it was, it was special school more than special ops. and. Yeah, so there was – I think it may have been a contest, if I'm remembering this correctly. Ben, ben had a mate his age. I had a mate uh, – this mate's brother was was my age and, and we'd, we'd gone in to see what we could liberate from this shop. And anyway, I think the only reason me and my mate didn't get busted is because Ben and his mate were just so overt and had caught the attention of the store detective first. And, and from memory, you got busted with a dozen golf balls, a Gumby doll, and maybe Dire Straits Brothers in arms. A Gumby doll! Stop! Something along those lines. I, I would like it to have been Brothers in Arms because at least that would give some credibility. No, it was a dozen golf balls and a Gumby doll. Like, so two things. I love Gumby. <laughs> <laughs> What are you doing with a dozen golf balls? I didn't play golf. And like, so these are stupid things to steal. And the second thing is they're really awkward things to steal, like a, a dozen golf balls in a box <laughs> and this, like, two-foot Gumby doll. But it gets better. So the cops the cops were involved. He's busted. The, the parents have got oh. to be involved. So the next step here to, to now let's, you know, why not double down? So Ben had a bike, which was our old man's old bike that he'd inherited and been done up. He'd, he'd ridden to the shops. So they, to justify this theft, they make up this cover story that they'd gone out to get their bikes before all the, the shoplifting had occurred. Someone had their bike and said, mate, you are going to go in and steal me some stuff, otherwise you're not getting your bike back. And and so this was the cover story. 
get down the cop station, the, the two of them get oh. split up, and and your mate sings like a canary. If if, if I'm I remember that. I think I think he had not done resistance to interrogation, or maybe neither of you had those skills at the time. And and there was differing no. stories that came came apart. Spectacularly. Well, it was that classic. But no, let me finish. You had ditched a bike in the local lake to get rid of it, and so the story went that you got in to fog these things. Had had been busted, had come back out. Bike was gone, so need to get rid of bike. You threw the bike in the bloody lake, and then went home and, and ran the, the story <laughs> on the oldies. Brilliant! Yeah. Oh my god! Be- because that element was was so watertight, you know, we, we wanted to to like fully really commit to it. Yeah, it was ridiculous. So committed, so committed. And I love it. It is funny. I think we both broke. We had the breaking strain of the Kit Kat <laughs> under interrogation. You only got busted because you tried to play your Led Zeppelin music as you walked into the store, <laughs> like, with, like right. with the fire behind you, like big explosion. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was lame. But there's that thought experiment called the the prisoner's dilemma, where you know, like uh, you you know the story. You know, if you yeah. if you both admit you get something, if you rat on your mate, and yeah, I think we lived that prisoner's dilemma, and we both went straight to to rat on your mate. Oh my god! So you don't have to be good at interrogation or your story oh, or captivity yeah. or alibis or anything to be a special operations guy. That's great news. Be a rollerblader and to my still end up there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't give up hope. Yeah. Stop lifting rollerbladers out there. Don't give up hope. You, you could end up the CEO of the SAS regiment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and very last question, guys. What is your favourite quote? I got to go with "It's not the critic who counts." So, being the, the the first line of the Theodore Roosevelt, I know it's it's been done to death, but that just really has resonated with me, particularly for my adult life. Just that trying to let go of that external mm. perspective, and like you said before, Sarah, just you know, owning it, going with it, doing what makes you feel happy. Like, you know, you mentioned Harry loves to cave dive and people don't get that. That's a weird thing to do. I don't get that, but I get Harry. He's a magic human being and he, he's just owned it. And like you said, that put him on the front page of national uh, international newspapers. But, yeah, that letting go of, of criticism and just doing what you truly believe in is, is aligned with your values and what you feel is going to make you happy. And, uh, and not listening to the critics, I think, is probably, for me, that's the, the number one. That's such a good and one. For me, I mean, we spoke about it all throughout this episode, that always a little further. I mean, it comes from that Flecker poem, which the scene is a, a caravan of merchants heading in biblical times on this, this treacherous journey. And the master of the caravans asking each of the, the merchants, you know, the spice merchants and the, the jeweller and the, the person with the rug and the embroideries, you know, how are you going and what have you got to take to this destination, Samarkand? And he comes to this group of ragtag people and he goes, who are ye in rags and rotten shoes, you dirty bearded, blocking up the way? And they respond, we are the pilgrims, master. We shall go always a little further. And that is inscribed on the clock tower of the, the British SAS regiment alongside the names of all their units fallen. And so it's really powerful wow. for people within the special operations community. And has become, like I said, a mantra for me personally, and I think a wonderful way to, to sort of encapsulate the kind of secret to what we're preaching in, in resilience. It's 
It's nothing big. It's nothing flashy. It is exactly as you said, Sarah, just that one step in front of the other towards a, a worthy destination. Oh, well, what a perfect way to end. I feel like you've passed that on to now be my mantra and hopefully many, many people who have sold out the book uh, and also hopefully a reprint is very quickly on its way so that more people can start to build their own resilient shield thank you so so much for joining guys and i'll pop a link in the show notes absolute pleasure awesome thank you sarah it's been great to chat if it wasn't conveyed clearly enough in this episode, I'll reiterate now that I took so much out of Resilient Shield, particularly as lockdown continues to drag on and hope that some of you get yourselves a copy too. I'll pop the link in the show notes to wherever there are still copies available at the time of releasing this episode, along with links to Dan and Ben's socials in case you want to know more. Very big thank you to our former guest, fellow ex-SAS soldier turned MBA graduate and dear friend Mark Wales, who introduced me to the Pronk Brothers for the show. I'm continually blown away by the platform this neighborhood has created for me to discover and meet new and fascinating people every week. I sometimes feel like these chats give us a little taste of exploring the world and meeting new people from the comfort of our own homes while we can't go out and do it in person. So I really do hope some of you enjoy that escapism too. I hope you're having a wonderful week and are finding ways to seize your yay.